0: We have been looking at Gideon, and Gideon was a judge. He was one of the most famous judges. There's about 14 judges through the period of the judges, and a judge was like a governor. We think of a judge like Judge Wapner or Judge Judy or the Supreme Court judges. As a judge in the Bible, it means a governor or a ruler. We might think of, you know, just a tribal chief, is really what they were. But they were both a governor-ruler in that they would lead the tribes of Israel. Uh, we might call them chief maybe we understand that in the american context a chief but they were also military leaders and so when when we speak of the judges whether you're talking about ehud or barak or or gideon or samson their job was twofold to lead israel in political matters and in governing matters but also to lead them in the deliverance from their enemies every 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 judge you'll see went to war Now, Deborah was a pseudo judge. She wasn't God's first choice, but because Barak wouldn't get after it and because Barak would not answer the call of God, she had to step up to the governing matters. He finally submitted and he became the military leader that Israel needed. Every every judge in the book of Judges was a military leader. Uh, Not every one of them though, would politically do their job like Samson. Samson never led anybody. So he was a half judge and as it was, he only lived for half the time everybody else lived. He only got to do his job for 20 years, whereas everybody else was basically 40 years. So with Gideon, he probably was selected about the age of 30, which is with the common Jewish age of manhood and leadership. And he was nervous and he was scared, but the angel of the Lord said, you mighty man of valor, you can do what I've called you to do. And that ought to encourage all of us that even when you don't feel qualified, you don't feel safe, you don't feel secure, you don't feel smart enough, you don't feel big enough, you don't feel qualified enough, that's exactly when God showed up to Gideon in the form of the Lord Jesus Christ under the Old Testament and said, you're a mighty man of valor and you will do what I've called you to do. And he really didn't give much of an option. And I would encourage you, the Lord's really not giving you guys much of an option either. He, he's really calling every member of the body of Christ up and onward to do what he wants you to do. And the best place you'll ever have in life is when you're doing what God's called you to do. The most joy you'll ever find, the most satisfaction, especially if you're this deep into the kingdom of God as you guys are, nothing else from this point will satisfy you. You can keep heaping to yourself riches. You can keep heaping to yourself books. You can keep heaping to yourselves vacations. You can keep heaping to yourselves movies. It'll never satisfy. The only thing that'll satisfy is when you do what you know God's called you to do and you just start doing it one day at a time. We're so far along in the things of God, in the end of the age, It's almost like on the inside, that stuff will never, ever, 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 never, ever, ever take care of you. It'll never make you feel good. It'll never give you peace. It'll never give you fulfillment. At this point in the timeline of history, at this point in our Christian walk, nothing will make you feel joyful and satisfied like doing what you know you're called to do. And so you have to get after it. You can run from God if you want and seek other things, but you'll always be miserable. It'll give you a little bit of relief for about half of a bite or half of a movie. And then you'll be realizing, I still am so empty. That's just what God puts on the inside of you and you can't get it out. It's his way of haunting you. If I can use that word in the Lord Jesus in one sentence, it's his way of nagging at you. And we've all experienced it. We all know when we're not doing what we know we need to do, we're miserable. And oftentimes that misery manifests as outbursts at people around us. Often that misery, that frustration, we take it out and we ignorantly and foolishly think it's everybody's fault around us but ours. And if you just fix your hair a certain way, I'd be happy. And if you could just eat your food a better way, I'd be happy. And if you could just clean up after yourself better, I'd be happy. And if you could just, you could just talk normal, I'd be happy. And if you could just keep your car cleaner, I could be happy. If you could just do this better, if you could fix a better spaghetti, I'd be happy. That's not the problem. Your problem is you're out of sorts with God. And not that he ever takes his Holy Spirit from us, but he does begin to withdraw his grace. And when God withdraws his grace from you and it kind of leeches out of you, not all at once, when it begins to leech out of you, you're miserable, you're frustrated, you are searching the world, trying to find some relief, blaming everybody, outbursting, outgrowling, out, you know, just being a jerk. And it's nobody's fault, but your own. And it will always be your fault. And it will only get worse and worse as the grace leaches out of you. It will continue to get worse and worse until you rise up and do the very thing you've known all along that you need to do. Pray, read your Bible, get your heart right, go to church, serve, cast off fear, find some safe self-esteem and some security, do all those things you know to do. Until then, the Lord's just gonna continue to leach grace out of you. He'll never leave you, but he doesn't have to help you. (laughs) As as Psalm says, when they were afflicted, then they sought Him. Psalm 107 says, and in their affliction, they sought Him early. Why do we have to be afflicted before we seek God? Pastor Vaughn used to say, some people are so dumb, they just have to hit bottom hard enough. I don't want to hit bottom. I don't don't even want to have to stand at the ledge. I, I told the Lord that I was praying this morning, And he'd spoken some things to me. I said, Lord, I don't want to seek you. I don't want to serve you for that. I want to serve you because it's the right thing to do. I want to serve you because I love you. I don't want to serve you for reward. I know you'll give it to me. But Lord, I I don't want to think I'm so immature you have to bribe me to serve you. Lord, it even hurts my heart that you would you would promise me a reward for serving you, as if I need a reward to serve you. I want to serve you, Lord, because it's the right thing to do. I want to get it in my heart that I serve you because I love you. Do it out of love, not out of a promise of a recompense because then it's works. And so we're not going to be happy. We're not going to be fulfilled. We're not going to be satisfied until we serve God because we know it's the right thing to do. Some of you, until you just start serving God, period. If you have to serve God to get some grace back on your life. You know, if you, you know whatever it takes, just serve God just to be back right where you need to be in the perfect center of his will. That's the best place to be. With Gideon, we knew he would never be happy from that day forward because the word of the Lord had come into him and said, you mighty man of valor, you will kill the Midianites. You will slay them as one person. And he would, From that point forward, he would never be happy. He would never be satisfied. There would always be this thing hanging over his head, always this thing hanging over his, his life. You know what? I could be leading Israel. I don't have to always thresh wheat. If he'd decided to stay in that wine press, fearful, he would always have that hanging over him. Remember the day the Lord appeared to me. Remember that day he appeared to us and he promised us to make us great if we just serve him. And I chose not to go with it. And so now 10 years later, now 20 years later, I'm still in this little bitty hiding hole threshing wheat. And God picked somebody else in my place. You got to know it make his life only more miserable. Now, God had given him something to do, surely, because God's merciful, but we don't want to live a life of regrets. We don't want to live a life where uh, we look back and say, man, I wish I could go back in time and kick my tail and get myself after it. We want to live every day like we love Jesus because we claim we do. And so that's what we've got to do. That's what Gideon's teaching us here. He was called and he rose up and did it even when he was scared. I've had a lot of questions lately on fear. Oh, pastor, if I'm afraid, uh, is that a lack of faith? No, do it part in faith, do it part in fear. Gideon got up and obeyed God afraid, but at least he got to doing something. And I can't tell you guys how many times I do something for God and I'm afraid when I'm doing it. I can't tell you how many times I I might go preach at a new place and I'm scared or how many times I might stand before people greater than me and I'm scared or how many times I'm asked to do something I've never done and I'm scared. Here in a couple weeks, they want me to do an evangelistic thing in Knoxville. I'm not really excited about that. I'm actually a little scared because evangelism and evangelistic preaching is not my thing. It's not what I'm good at. It's not what I've spent five and a half years doing. So I'm a little nervous about that, but I don't even think about it because I've got to do it. And I know as soon as I step up there, whether I'm prepared or not, whether I got the right message or the wrong message, God will anoint me to do whatever I'm asked to do. So there's no problem with fear. Just don't let it hinder you. And honestly, the Lord uses fear to keep you, excuse me, the the devil uses fear to keep you in your little place. And you gotta be big enough to crawl out of that little hiding hole. You know, Thank God Gideon was in that hiding hole, threshing wheat and judging himself, but you can only judge yourself so long, then you gotta go do something. Thank God, you know, stay there and judge yourself if you want to, but at some point you got to crawl out of your hole and go make an impact. And the person with experience is the one that has climbed out of their hole and realized God's word was true. And the person with experience is the one that climbed out of another hole and learned God was true. But it doesn't matter how how much you know, if you never climb out of that hole, your knowledge is good for nothing. It hasn't benefited you any. It doesn't benefit you any just living in that hole knowing all of this, but still being afraid. And so we've got to be like Gideon, climb out and do it afraid. Just climb out and just suck it up and do it afraid. Push yourself. That's what it takes to fulfill the call of God. God has better things for you than living in a hole afraid, studying the Bible. you praise God, you study the Bible. But if all you ever do is study the Bible in your hole, it's evident the Bible hasn't done you as much good as it could have is he that does the word, not just hears it, amen. So let's look at Gideon's humility. Enough pastoring there for a moment. Gideon's humility, this is page 13. We're wrapping these lessons up today. The divine appearance of an angel alone was proof that Gideon had found favor in God's eyes. However, Gideon demonstrated the vital leadership quality of humility in several ways. If you're going to lead, you have to be humble. You can be humble and be fearless. You can be humble and be fearless. Some people equate humility with weakness. Some people equate humility uh, with being a pushover. That's not the case at all. Jesus Christ was humble. There wasn't an ounce of pride in his body, but he was not fearful at all. I guess we're dealing with fear a little bit this morning. Jesus Christ was not afraid, humble, but not afraid to go into the temple and draw blood and run animals out turn over money tables and just dare them to try to kill him. He was not afraid, but he was very humble. And sometimes we think to be a leader, we've got to be prideful, brash, arrogant, snotty, snot-nosed. That's not the case at all. That's just an idiot. That's a jerk. That's a dictator. You can be a great leader and not be a dictator. So let's look at some humility characteristics we can find in Gideon. Uh, He lived a life of self-examination that we've discussed that already. He examined himself in that wine press where he was threshing wheat. Threshing wheat is a a biblical allegory for self-judgment. When you thresh wheat, you separate chaff from the grains. And so when you judge yourself, you separate chaff in your life from that which is good in your life. That's humility, when you're willing to look at where you're wrong, when you're willing to sit down and have people scrutinize you, When you're willing to have people you trust, not just any Tom, Dick or Harry, but just people you trust scrutinize and interrogate your life, that's humility. Where you can say, hey, show me where I'm wrong. Where you can say, hey, uh, would you please look into my life? Tell me how I could do this better. Anybody have any ideas how I could do this better? That's humility. David surrounded himself with many counselors. That was humility. And there was not a more fearless warrior than David. And he didn't even have Samson's anointing. He just had God, but he was always had people around him and he'd let prophets rebuke him over and over again. He'd even let Joab come to him and correct him. That's humility. Gideon threshed wheat by the wine press. Humility always examines itself. So as a leader, you've got to be willing to examine yourself. If you get your feelings hurt when somebody corrects you, that's pride. If you can't handle a little bit of correction, there's pride there. Dr. Barclay told me, uh, he, he was trying to. He was, I was asking how, how I can do a better job to raise up preachers in our church. And he said, you got to get around you. And he said, spend time with them. He said, get them in your office or spend time with them and pray for them, pray with them, anoint them with oil, have a Bible lesson with them or just rebuke them. So maybe just call them to your office and rebuke them for an hour. And he said, if they can't handle a rebuke from somebody that loves them, they'll never be able to handle criticism from people that hate them. And that's good for all of us, not just preachers. But if you can't handle correction from somebody you know who's committed to you, well, that really shows how arrogant you are. You can't handle your wife telling you something. You can't handle your husband correcting you. You can't handle a dear brother in Christ coming to you and, and with a good heart saying, hey, this is wrong. That really shows how much pride in you. Correction will always show you what's in you. you know, a rebuke will always show you what's in you. Having a total stranger call you a name will always show you what's in you. All these little things that are afflicting. They're the little barbs of affliction. But sometimes you got to kick the horse to make it go a little bit faster. You know, spurs aren't like, you know, they're not like loofah sponges, spurs on a cowboy. So it's not like they prod the, the horse with the loofah sponge. Spurs are sharp and it's to goad the horse. And sometimes correction is to goad you or to prod you. We, we would use the term prod. We don't know what a G-O-A-D is, a goad, a goad, a, goad, a prod. But sometimes you, you get a little spur in your side and you get mad, want to buck people off of you. That's just arrogance. You haven't been broken yet. A broken horse can be spurred. A wild, arrogant horse you spurt, he's kicking. He bucks you off and on your way back, then he bucks you forward. And if he kicks you in the head, God help you. Uh, By showing diligence to work, Gideon was not lazy. Leaders are not lazy people. You can't lead from the throne. You got to get out there and help with hands-on stuff. That goes for parents, that goes for moms, that goes for dads. You have to get your hands dirty. Part of a dad's job is to train and and bring up the child in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Part of a husband's job, according to Ephesians, is to nourish and cherish his wife. The word nourish means to train and discipline. So part of a husband's job in leading his wife is to train her and discipline her. I know the lesbians don't like that verse, and neither do a lot of American women. But that's what Ephesians 5 says: for no man ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes. The Greek word for nourishes to train and discipline. We thought nourishment meant, you know, to you know, give him a bottle and and you know maybe pet them. And no, 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 no. Greek translated to the old English nourish. Now I know English evolves, and really in this day and age it dissolves rapidly. You know, it's almost like a pop tart or tic tac in your mouth. It just there for a moment and then it's gone. Especially with Facebook and Skype and Twitter, and you know, we talk with thumbs and with no vowels anymore, and you know, L-O-L, and you know, all the ones that have the cuss words in them now, too, you know. So it doesn't surprise me we don't know what words mean anymore. But look up the Greek. The word nourish means a husband's job is to train his wife. Train how? To help him. If a wife is called a help meet, then she is called to help her husband. That means it assumes the husband knows what he's doing and where he's going. So maybe you men need to figure out what your call in life is. Because realize your wife's been given to you to help you with your calling. And in that regard, let me bust your liberal, lesbian, feminist ideologies, women. You don't have a vision of your own. As a Christian woman married to a man, you don't have a vision of your own anymore not according to the Bible, as a Christian woman, you don't get your own vision anymore. Do you know I don't have my own vision anymore? You know this is not what I chose to do? This is not what I chose for my life? Now, when you're an arrogant American, full of American doctrine, full of feminist propaganda, You're taught to pursue the world, have your cake, eat it too, run the world. You can be a man, anything he can do, I can do better. Put on your britches and shave your face. But according to the Bible, man was made first. And when you're married to him, your number one job is taking care of him. You'll always be frustrated as a wife when your number one job according to God Almighty is to take care of him. And you're just wanting to take care of your vision. The grace of God will be quickly depleted from your life as a woman, as a wife. When you're a born again Christian, married to a born again man, and all you wanna do is take care of your vision, you'll always be frustrated, you'll always be miserable. God himself will resist you because your your first title in the Bible is helper. I know that isn't lesbian. I know that isn't all bulldog butch, wrinkly mouth, little mullet in the back, tight dicky jeans, doctrine, but it's Bible. And some of you are frustrated because you only worried about your vision and you have yet to catch your husband's vision. And you've really got to resolve this in your heart. So part of a husband's job is to know his vision and his calling. And even if you don't know the specifics, you can know we serve God no matter what. So get in line, sweetie, we're serving God. Help me serve God. If that's all you know, thank God. I have a job, we have a mortgage, we serve God, help me do all the above. That, dear woman, dear sister, will fulfill your life more than anything. Don't believe Hollywood's lies, that you gotta have this fame, fortune, fortune 500, CEO, CFO, COO, all those things you can't spell on Twitter. That will never satisfy you. You'll be most miserable. Hollywood and the world was shocked When the CEO of Yahoo said, yeah, I love having kids and I love having them in my office with me. And I go home at five (laughs) o'clock. You go home at five o'clock? Why, billion dollar woman? So I can cook dinner for my family. (sighs) You shouldn't do that. That's not a liberated woman. I'm the CEO of Yahoo and I still want babies and I still wanna go home and take care of my man. Not even a Christian. Rocked the world a couple weeks ago. Started all this banter and chat. Should women really go home at five o'clock and make their husband's dinner when they're gonna fulfill their make and their model and their design? Yeah. Husbands, if you're gonna fulfill your role as a leader, your job is to train your wife. Now I know that really isn't very lesbian. Well, honey, uh, you're being trained by the lesbian spirit in the world. So who do you want to train you, a godly husband or a lesbian demon? All of us are being trained by something. The key is who are you going to let train you? Because no matter who you are, whether you worship Satan in a pentagram circle or Muhammad in a mosque or Jesus Christ in a church, everybody's being trained by something. I'm being trained every day. So either you're going to be trained by this lesbian feminist spirit, ladies, Are you going to be trained by your husband and the Lord Jesus Christ? All you can do is control who trains you. You you can't control the training because you're going to be trained by something. You can control who trains you. Dr. Barclay trains me. The Holy Ghost trains me. There are times when I slack off, my flesh trains me. There's times I can hear the spirit realm. I don't want to try to woo-woo you out. I hear the demon realm quite often, and it's always trying to train me. Just the other day I woke up and, and, and the spirit realm was trying to talk me out of salvation, trying to talk me out of faith in the Bible. I went, what? You, re-, I was like, you realize how well I'm hearing you right now, right? I mean, this is not just like a small voice. I can hear you. And you're really trying to say this to me? Something's always training you. So don't get your, all, your lesbian feathers all ruffled because I said, according to Ephesians 5, no man ever hateth his own flesh, but loveth it and nourisheth it, cherisheth it, even as Christ the church. Christ is always training and disciplining the church. A husband's job is to train and discipline his wife. It doesn't mean spank her. Say, honey, this is what we're gonna do. Get in line or I'm taking the credit cards away. I know that's foreign to us as Americans. You know, We, we just wanna run the show. We have all the answers. No, you don't. Look at your life. Look at my life, I need help. So leadership, diligence to work, getting was not lazy. I don't know how we got off on all that. Ladies, yeah, ladies, wives, I should say wives, your husband is to train and discipline you. And I teach this, husbands, your wife should be your best disciple. Ladies, I'd encourage you, we're not against college education, masters or PhDs, but if that's your fulfillment in life, you've missed God. According to the Bible, man was made first. According to the New Testament, wife was made second. And she was made to help her husband. I don't care how smart you are. I don't care what your dreams you put in you in the university. If you could see into the spirit realm at a university, you'd see nothing but demons. So even the dream you dreamed in college probably is not of God. Probably 95% is not of God. Unless you came to church and had a dream. Then maybe it was God. But even then, we still walk it out. We're trying to strip the American philosophy out of you because it's all about selfishness. Uh, by submitting to the stranger, the, Gideon, uh, the angel and calling him Lord. So Gideon demonstrated humility by submitting to a total stranger and being willing to serve him. He didn't call him Lord like L-O-R-D, like capital L, capital O, but just like, Lord, sir, excuse me, sir, can I help you? Can I get that for you? That's humility. You know, you never know who's watching you and what they secretly know about you. And honestly, the New Testament says you never know when you'll entertain angels unawares. And angels are often sent, according to the Bible, just to check up on people, just to see how you're doing. And you just never know what message they'll take back for, for you. So it's always good just to be humble and open doors for people and just what we Southerners call manners. We were at LTAP last night and uh, we walked in behind a prom couple. They were I, not very assertive and we ended up being right in the front uh, to get our table and they put our name down and then, then they stepped up. I said, oh, I said, put them in front of us. They were here first, just because just it's right. I don't care, we're, I mean, we're in a rush but we're not in that big of a rush. Not, somebody here might know me as a pastor and yeah, I saw that pastoral television. He cut us off at LTAP. It ain't worth ruining your name. Some of you can be so polite in church, but you're totally rude jerks outside. Be careful, your name goes before you further than you realize. More people know you than will ever let on. And so Gideon demonstrated a heartfelt humility by entertaining a total stranger and honoring him. By preparing a selfless and elaborate meal gift for the angel. That's another demonstration of humility. Just serving a total stranger, preparing a meal that probably took the better part of a day, probably six or seven hours. We've already taught on that. He just laid down his life to serve somebody, just to prove, are you really from God? Well, even if you're not, let me cook something for you. One of the requirements to be a deacon and a bishop or an elder in the church is hospitality. You'll never be a leader in the local church without being hospitable. Some of us are so reclusive, we never want to open our home to anybody. Some of us, are either our house is a dump and we're ashamed of it, we'll go clean it. We, how much do we preach against hoarding around here? It seems like every month we talk about hoarding because some of you still hoard junk. And we probably in this Sunday school in the last two months I've talked on hoarding, you, we've all talked about, you can go into a brand new house empty and it feels one way. And then you can just picture it, then just pack it full of junk and trash. Does it feel the same way? And we have demonstrated we have no Bible verse for that, but somehow junk and clutter affects the spiritual atmosphere of a house. You can't explain it. I don't have a Bible verse for it, but you know it. An empty house or a house with a very minimalist type of interior design and furniture feels one way, probably better then a house full of junk, knickknacks everywhere. You know, I've been in houses that have a thousand pictures all over the walls of people that have been dead 20 years, and it's just almost like walking into a mausoleum. But what you have in your house certainly affects your atmosphere. Dr. Barclay calls it demon bait. Not that everything you have in your house is demon bait, but he said the Lord spoke to him about a painting he had on the wall, and the Lord said that's demon bait. And he got rid of a very expensive painting, he said, but something attached to it, slavery, I don't know. So the guy painted it. I don't know, it's a complicated story, but some of the stuff you have in your house, you just ought to get rid of. We have a rule in our house, just to share with you how we do things. Anytime we buy something that we already have something of, we get rid of the old, amen. So like my wife, she gets a purse, a purse has to go away. If I get shoes, shoes have to go away, just to keep rid of clutter. Because every one of us here has stuff in our home We're never going to use again, but you're convinced you might. In that regard, you think just like a hoarder. Is that a ledge you want to stand on? I developed a philosophy, and that's not a biblical thing necessarily, but a mindset in college. If I haven't used it in two or three years, it goes away. Because if I haven't used it in two or three years, I'm not going to use it. And in two or three years, if I need one, I'll just go buy the newest model and then I'll use it. So my wife just bought socks. She said, honey, you'll be proud of me, just bought socks. So I threw some away. <laughs> and they had holes in them, you know, not perfectly good socks. But we buy a jacket, a jacket has to go away. That's how you keep rid of clutter. But honestly, what's in your home that you don't need? A lot. And yet your mind, because of some dumb vain imagination is convinced, I might could use this four inch scrap of copper wiring someday. <laughs> But I collect unicorns, but I collect polar bears. Really, how many collections do you need? It makes your home weird. I know you don't like this because some of you are hoarders. Just streamline your house. Bless somebody with it. And somebody else could use it. Use your faith, Lord, tell me somebody to give this to. Somebody wants this. All right, you. Got, I don't know what your problem is, but. For some of you, I've been trying to help you with your hoarding problem for probably four years. Your house is still a dump. You live in America, but you look like you live in Possum Holler, worthy of Possum Holler. Streamline your home by allowing the angel to direct him with the gift. So he was humble enough to let this total stranger tell him, all right, that broth poured out. I spent all day working on it. That's humility, won't complain. Well, hey, if this is your gift. If you want me to throw it over my shoulder, I'll throw it over my shoulder. Can you take it back, please? I like it, well done. An arrogant person complains. I, I work so hard, just be appreciative. No, that doesn't apply. That's humility. By building an altar and surrendering his life to the Lord. That, what's, that's an ultimate act of humility. Surrendering your life to the Lord. Surrendering your life to the Lord. If your life is surrendered to the Lord, you know, you don't need your top level full of junk, you know, floor to ceiling boxes of periodicals and newspapers. And even Pastor Vaughn preached against this stuff. You know, he talked about being at somebody's house and they had newspaper articles, and I might want to go back and look at that one day. Well, meanwhile, the rats are eating it and going number two in between the papers. You want to know why you have health issues in your home? Maybe it's the sanitary conditions of your home. There's not a single reason living in this this non-third world nation in America that your home should have sanitary health issues. There's not a reason your house should have mold issues, except that you're lazy and you neglect your home and you make people sick. Maybe you're the reason your kids are sick. Have you ever to consider this stuff? We can believe God for healing all day long, but maybe your house is just a dump and it breeds dumpiness. This would be me, the angel, trying to tell you how to <laughs> direct your offering. <laughs> just trying to get you healthier. In college, we lived on Broad Street and one of my roommates, it was a hundred, then it was a 107 year old farmhouse. And I didn't have allergy problems and neither did Jeff Green, but Michael Vaughn moved in with us. And Michael Vaughn had health issues, not, he, was a, he was a runner, but he had allergies and our house had mold in it. And just out of love for a roommate who was a brother in Christ, we inconvenienced ourselves. We'd lost, I think, some money, had to come up with some more money. We moved out of the farmhouse just because we loved a roommate. Because we knew there was mold in the house. Because Michael Vaughn, I've not talked to in 15 years. I lived with him for maybe two years. Just a brother in Christ I met in FCA and it was just the right thing to do. Hey, this isn't our home, so we can't gut the thing, we can't demold the thing, but the least we can do is move to Fourth Street and get a new apartment so Michael Vaughn doesn't have to fight health issues. Now, how much more should a father or a mother clean up the dump of their home so their kids can stop coughing up hairballs and breathing mold spores? Come on, don't you love your family more than that? You got to know if my house caused health problems, we'd either gut the thing, burn it down or go buy another one. We're not going to tolerate this stuff. That's just part of leading. You take care of the folks you lead. Otherwise, you're not a leader. You're just a loner. They start with the same letter. They end with the same two letters, but they're totally different. If your house is a dump, you as a husband, your job is to fix it. If you have to back off what you do around here, back off what you do around here. God doesn't want you to let your house fall in disrepair. We have more than enough people to take care of this home. So don't use that as an excuse. Go clean it out. Have a big old bonfire in the backyard. It's fun. Don't use gasoline, use diesel. Otherwise you'll come to church with no facial hair. Look like a Chinese monk, the front half of your hair burned off. <laughs> Amen. 1 Peter 5, 6, I got to get moving. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Humility will exalt you. God selected Gideon because of his hard work ethic, clean living and humility. And we ask the question, do you share these characteristics with Gideon? Are you a hard worker? Are you clean living? Is there humility? Those are the three ingredients I see in Gideon's life. Hard working, not just on the job, A lot of men work hard for Pharaoh. And there's nothing wrong with working hard for Pharaoh. The Bible commands you to. But when they come home, they don't work hard for their family. They don't work hard for their wife. They don't work hard for their kids. When they get home, mama who's worked hard all day, she goes into overdrive. Daddy goes into his coast. That, in my opinion, is a shiftless man. To work hard all day for mammon. And to come home and not work hard for mama. Once again, they start with the same letter. So now it would almost sound like you're a loner working for mammon instead of a leader working for mama. We're just making this up as we go, it's fun. Just kind of seeing what I can play with words. Don't work harder for mammon than you do for mama. Don't work harder, don't let your office be nicer than your home. Don't let your boss get more out of you than your family does. How dare you let your boss get more out of you than your family does? Give your boss everything but give your family everything more. That's only proper because your boss could can you in a week and not even tell you about it today. But your wife and your kids are with you forever. Don't you dare give your boss more than you give your wife and children. That's not a leader. And many marriages have failed and fallen apart because of that. Many wives have felt neglected because of that. Uh, Many children have grown up hating father because of that. You've got to make sure your family feels just as important because Pharaoh will never say thank you. Pharaoh will never be there for you. Pharaoh will not pay for your funeral. Pharaoh will not be there in the hospital. Pharaoh will not be there at your kid's graduation. Pharaoh will not be there at your daughter's wedding, but mama will and so will your family. So part of leading is leading more at home than you do on the job. And it's really a shame that some husbands are better leaders at work than they are at home. It's really a shame some husbands are better leaders at work than they are at home. So let's get this right. We're not even talking about preachers now, obviously. We're talking about just men being men. The need for a leader. Gideon was being prepared for leadership just in time to lead Israel against the Midianites. Judges 633, Then all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the children of the east were gathered together and went over and pitched in the Valley of Jezreel. The Lord's kind of sneaky in my opinion. He said, you're gonna fight the Midianites. And then a lot more than that show up. It's just kind of like when he says, you're gonna pastor in Grafted Word Church. And he doesn't tell me everything else that comes along with that. He'll never tell you everything that comes with it because you'll run away. But he knows that if he calls you, he'll also equip you to do everything he's called you to do. And so you can't be afraid. Sometimes he just doesn't tell us because he knows how much fear is still in us. Some of us can't even get over the fear we've made up in our head. Most of our fear is fear we just made up in our head. Most of our fear is just fear we make up in our head because 99.99999% of it never comes to pass. And yet you live there convinced it's real. And the 0.0001% that comes to pass comes to pass because like Job, that which you feared the most has come upon you. You brought it there through your faith, through entertaining that familiar spirit. You brought it upon you by believing what the demon told you. Amen. Gideon was raised up because there was a need for leadership. The need for leaders is greater now than ever. Are you willing to do what it takes to be a leader? Are you willing to be the leader your children need? Are you willing to be the leader that your, your wife needs? Are you willing to be the leader the body of Christ needs? Are you willing to rise up? I was telling somebody uh, on their job, they, they said uh, something about a promotion and a raise. And I said, hey, in this community, all you have to do is just breathe a little bit quicker and work a little bit harder than your coworker. They'll make you manager. This region has a very low pulse. And all you have to do there is come in and be able to tell him you can work a little faster and run a little harder, you can own the company next week. That's all it takes, amen. Gideon's selection, Gideon was not only called, but he was also selected. Gideon's life changed drastically once he was called and the Spirit of God came upon him in a mighty way. Judges 6, 34 and 35, but the Spirit of the Lord, see verse 20, 33 says that all these people came against Israel. But, verse 34 says, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon and he blew a trumpet. And Abizar was gathered and assembled together after him. And he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh who gathered after him. And he sent messengers to Asher and to Zebulun and to Nephtali. And they came up to meet him. Before Gideon was selected, he could only draw 10 men to himself. That's all he could ever draw, 10. After his consecration and selection, God drew not just the city of, excuse me, Abizar, but four tribes, Manasseh, Asher, Zebulun and Nephtali. Four tribes, before all he could get was 10 people. After that, he was able to get four tribes. That's quite an increase, it just shows you when the Spirit of God comes upon you, you can do better. Here's the thing, in dealing with husbands, all of our husbands here, you've already been selected to be a husband. So you already have the anointing to get the job done. But are you willing to rise up and use it? Are you willing to rise up and do it? We don't have an anointing problem, we have a laziness problem. We have a philosophical mindset problem. We have a selfish problem. We have a whatever makes me happy and why I just don't want to harumph and and we have an excuse problem. If you're a husband, you've already been selected. Your wife selected you, your God selected you. You've already been anointed to do better, but perhaps like Samson, you're misappropriating the anointing. Perhaps like Samson, you're misusing it and just kind of like Samson, just picking and choosing what you want to do with it. You don't get to do that. You've got to be what God's called you to be, which is a leader. Leaders lead. They don't know how to not lead. They don't know how to not take charge. In fact, when leaders get a hold of it, when they go into a place, they have to restrain themselves because they start seeing everything that needs to be fixed and how they could do it better. They have to pull back on their reins. They don't have to be spurred. Leaders should never have to be spurred. They should have to be restrained. But as it is, the Lord Jesus ends up doing a lot of spurring and very little restraining. What he ends up restraining is his, our flesh. He doesn't ever have to restrain our leadership because we're still trying to be spurred towards it. which we could kinda kick you guys a little harder and spur you on. And then if he spurs you too much, then maybe he can restrain you. Selection is supernatural promotion. When God selects you, that is supernatural promotion. When a woman decided she wanted to marry you, that was a supernatural promotion. I mean, to think some of us got somebody to say yes. That's supernatural. As I like to point out, husbands, this one convicts me. Would another man take care of your wife better? Now, she's never gonna say yes. She's gonna say, I don't want another man because she loves you. But would another man do a better job than you with your kids, with your wife? Would another man be more deserving of your family? That thought right there will be the constant kick in your ribs. Would another leader lead better? You've got to have this dog nabbed determination on the inside of you that nobody's gonna do this better than me, not a soul. I will outperform them all. I will outlove my wife. I will outlove my children. I will outlead my family. But could somebody do it better? No, your wife's never going to want, and your children will never want another daddy. They may want a better daddy, but they'll want that better daddy to be the same daddy, just better. This is what leadership is all about. We're not even talking about being apostles here. When somebody, when, when somebody was foolish enough to say yes to us men, <laughs> that was supernatural promotion. To find a woman that would spend the rest of their life with you without a promise of a better future, <laughs> that was supernatural. So don't disappoint. Be what God wants you to be and do better. Gideon Excuse me, it will activate the calling of God upon your life. Once you're selected, God will draw the people to you that, are, that you need to accomplish the work. Gideon began with 10 servants in his home. After his consecration and selection, God drew 32,000 men to his aid. The number was quickly adjusted to about 300. The anointing of God will draw people to you, but your character is critical to retaining them. The anointing of God will draw people to you, but your character is critical to retaining them. The anointing of God on your life, gentlemen, is what drew that godly woman to you. But you better believe character will also help divorce or a lack of character. No woman wants to be married to an idiot or a lazy or a jerk or caveman. Character is so critical to retaining your family. You want your kids to grow up and leave you and never have anything to do with you? I, I counsel. Christians who were grown, who struggle with not wanting to be around their parents. Pastor, do I have to be around them? No. Pastor, they've never done anything for me. Pastor, they never love me. They never taught me about the things of God, really. Pastor, they're mean. Do I, I, I love them, but do I have to be around them? There's nothing the Bible says you have to be around your parents. You can honor them, but honor doesn't mean you have to be around them. Some honor is just prayer. I'm counseling Christians who don't want to be around their parents. Do you want your kids to grow up and not ever want to come back to you? That's the beauty of having children. You raise them up right, they never want to leave. Not because they're weird and want to live in the basement like some kind of geek, but because they just love their mom and dad so much. They always want to come home. That's the beauty of children, when you do it right. When you do it wrong, they leave and they never look back because they can't wait to get out of Dodge I'm convinced we're gonna pray and believe God our children rise up to serve us all their lives. I modeled after my pastor. My pastor's children serve him and the grandkids serve him. That's a legacy. Gideon's life was changed forever. His life would never be a simple farm life ever again. He would now live to serve the kingdom. It's awesome, nothing wrong with farm life, but I think kingdom life is better. Nothing wrong with geology life, but I think kingdom life is better. Conclusion, through obedience, Gideon went from being a scared farm boy to a great military and national leader. He went from secretly tearing down an altar at night to publicly tearing down a tower at Penuel. If you will wholeheartedly obey God, not half-heartedly, but wholeheartedly obey God, he will take you from obscurity to a place of great prominence in the kingdom for his glory. Father, we thank you for these lessons. May all these listeners be blessed Father, may it have spurred us, provoked us, kicked us in the ribs a little bit and encouraged us to go on and do great things even as the farm boy Gideon did. We thank you for this great testimony of this man of faith in Jesus' name, amen.